Welcome to Under the Blanket. And I am here now, sitting outside my backyard. The birds are chirping. And we're under Mirage's blanket again, in his heart, where we see the non-dual. And I'm here with guest host, Badri Das, who's been on before. And I figured let's start off with talking about intuition. Tell us what you know about intuition, Badri Das. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a... Uh... Uh, an extra sensory perception uh, mechanism that I think we all have and um, there's I think there's a couple different layers of it like some of that you feel in your heart and there's a knowing in your heart other things like uh, psychic premonitions or um, uh, future predictions or sensing something's coming are all part of intuition. Yeah, to me, that's how I understand intuition. Intuition to me is like you could intuit, you could use it in many different ways. Like I try to use it as in what can I do or whatever, you know, what can happen to increase oneness, you know, with the, and that sort of thing. What's the mm-hmm. most harmonious thing to do? And, uh, you know, for me right now in the world and everything out of the whole. But it's interesting because I use that intuition, but I also use my rational mind as a servant to that. And I sort of work them out together. And I go with where best where I'm at. I don't sit there and make a decision. I'm like, oh, should I do this? And just sit there for an hour trying to make a decision. I go with, you know, I quiet down a little bit. I make the decision then from where I'm at. And, you know, a lot of times it is a mistake. But we, we fall on our, like Ramda says, we make mistakes, we fall on our face, we pick, we pick ourselves back up, we brush ourselves off, we look at God sheepishly, and we continue on. And I think yeah. until you're 100% totally pure, your decisions are going to have retained by ego. So we have to recognize that, I think, is important when examining intuition. Yeah, there's, uh, and I, I think that's why they call it like a gut feeling, because you kind of feel it like that. But... It, it definitely uh, distinguishing between like uh, intuition, which is basically like the language of the soul and w- the activity of the mind, because a lot of times, like you said, it can be easy to misinterpret like one for the other or like paranoia for intuition when that usually intuition isn't going to steer you in that type of direction. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could, it's it, when you're a beginner on the path, it's sure it's very easy to confuse all that and uh, make decisions uh, that are, you know, you think it's your intuition, but it's actually a paranoid uh, thought. And what I look at it is it's all about like doing your best, you know, and trying to quiet down inside. The quieter you are, the more you hear what the next step is. And it's interesting that, uh, you know, it's like sometimes, though, your intuition will be strong about something that's not conflicting, that is conflicting with your rational mind. It doesn't make rational sense. And that's the most difficult times to go with your intuition when your rational mind's like saying this is a terrible idea, but you feel this really strong heart pulled or something. And that's the most difficult. So could you speak to that? Say someone out there is listening. They have a strong heart pull and intuition towards something. But when they talk it out or they tell it to someone else, they'd be like, that crazy. You shouldn't do that. Yeah, I think a lot of people uh, uh, 
when it comes to like romance, people get uh, caught up in that definitely because they're like, I just feel this feeling about this person. I feel pulled to this person. And their rational mind is saying like, like, what are you thinking? Like, don't do that. And they're like, oh, but I feel this pull. And so again, like the ego in a lot of ways, the ego mind can put on the mask of intuition and, and guide you astray because a lot of times, uh, what is like a yearning, what feels like a yearning of the heart is actually, uh, a craving of like lust or desire or, you know, like anything like that. So yeah, it's important to differentiate and, you know, but I also think we have to recognize that until our ego is completely gone, uh, no, there's never going to be 100% pure intuitive pull towards something. It's always going to have that little bit of ego. So it's all it is going to be wrapped up in our desires a little bit, you know, so I think there's a middle ground on this. And, you know, I, it's just, uh, you know, go with where you are. I really think it helps, though, to meditate and quiet your mind down to develop your intuition. And, you know, speaking of psychic things like visions of the future that turn out to be true, premonitive dreams, all that kind of stuff. That's related to intuition, but it's interesting that that uh, city or spiritual power can be a huge ego trap and can increase the illusion of separation and be terrible. I mean, there's yogis out there that meditate for years and then they get this powerful city and they use it to get sexual things and get power over people and all that kind of stuff. Definitely. And and just on the topic of like the ego, like. I don't think it, it it doesn't die because it, it never actually lived. It's just an idea in our head. Uh, and like anything else, like those things in your head, you can set set those things down for a minute. You can set the ego down for a minute. So if you're having a uh, an intuitive type of moment to set the ego down so that you can like, like see what, what what's actually being like transmitted to you is i think uh important to do (laughs) oh i definitely want to go there it's like to me i feel the opposite i feel the ego can uh die and i feel it ultimately will die because it's temporal illusionary uh process that ends and i think it's interesting because your personal ego can die and also the collective ego dies i think ego is illusion to ultimately end I think the whole I'm into be here now. Be here now is really a big promotion of the crisp trip where it says you will die. Your ego will die. It will end. And we can't define what you'll be, but you'll be beyond that. But there will be this essence that gets through. And I don't you know, it's not like I have a choice. I want to kill the ego. It's all big. You know, I know it's just like something that I got sucked into, like a moth into the flame. But that's not everybody's path. That isn't some people. They it's better for them not to think of it like that. Well, I, I kind of see the ego, like from from the standpoint of the ego, the ego uh, has a demise moment. But from the the universal seeing, the the ego never actually existed, and so it 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 it, it can't it can't die. It's like a cloud can't die. It just changes form and then dissipates. Well, I guess in the sense that it is not even there, that it's it's then it can't die. Well, of course, it can't die in the sense that it's not there. I get where you're going with that. In that sense, there is never an ego in the first place. Right. 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, how about you tell us uh, an example of when your ego has tricked you in the past? Oh, <laughs> definitely. Uh, just o- almost my entire life, I guess. Uh, you know, uh, I've had moments where it's like, oh, I feel like I'm really supposed to write this book and I'm really supposed to like do this thing and I've written it. And then afterwards I've been like, what was I thinking? Like, wh- <laughs> like what actually drove me to like write that? Was it, was it, uh, this intuitive heart space driven thing? Or was it this like ego type of thing where it's like, I must be recognized for kind of like what, you know, quote unquote, I know <laughs> when it, And so like, and then afterwards you feel that kind of like, oh, like, why did I do that? And then your perspective changes and then everything like that was in the book I wrote was just like, oh, well, that is, that that doesn't even like apply anymore, but I'm still like held to that because it was things that I put down in word or like, uh, you know, songs I've made or like, I really want to do this project like this is really going to define me, but all it's actually defining is like elements of the ego. And so, or even just like being on Facebook is like another extension of the ego in that way. And so a lot of times I try to use it in like a positive way or, or try to interject a, a positive, you know, spiritual note into it, but the ego is sticky and it always finds a way to, try to get back in the driver's seat. And so that, I guess that's my sadhana is to do my best to keep it out of the driver's seat. Yeah. And it's interesting. I noticed about Facebook is that I'd say for most people, it is like an external ego reinforcement. So, you know, they put, it's all about creating an external social media presentation of the ego that's not only not your ego, but it's like an external ego that you can look at and see that's like an offshoot of the ego. And what yeah. it does is it for a lot of people ends up, they look at their own wall and they look at how people react to it and they're like reinforcing this false idea of their what they're presenting. And they know it's a costume. They know that's not me and uh, my ego, but it's an extension of the ego. What it ends up doing is reinforcing their own ego and making it stronger and more identified with it. And what I find is the opposite can be done. That right. you, could, you could go on Facebook, and I recommend for our listeners, if you're into Facebook and you just find yourself doing it a lot, then make it a spiritual practice. When you're scrolling down your news feed, just watch how your ego will react to every post. You'll see a flower, and you're like, oh. You'll see some political thing. You're like, rah. And just sit back there and just watch it. And the more you watch it, and just let it do its thing. Let it react. The reactions will get quieter and quieter until you're just being there completely with no reaction and everything just is energy of God. And that in that way, social media can be a yoga. And then when yeah. you share, try to share uplifting things. You know, you don't our information is uplifting. It doesn't have to be uplifting, but it could be information as well that someone might need to be informed about some or about uplifting. But do people do you really need to share your food? And, you know, there's, <laughs> there's surveys where you. I'm 78% super bitch. And like some of the things out there is just like so much ego. It's like, I want to throw up and I got to stop following them. Well, and a lot of that, like Facebook too, like recognizes like based on like your personality profile, basically 
uh, what types of things will will trigger this person to have like a negative reaction so that they stay on there longer to get a, a positive hit and uh, will post something of a contrary nature to get like likes from it so that you get that dopamine hit from it. So they've really worked it out to like a science on Facebook to where like if you ever talk to anybody who has worked in the offices of Facebook, like it's definitely uh, a tool for uh, manipulation. Of, oh, absolutely. Of, the way they organize the algorithm and they've admitted this, like it's, this is not a conspiracy theory. Facebook has come out and said, at least I know this for sure, that they Facebook company admitted that they did an experiment where they organized the algorithm for a person to get more negative stories and then organize other people's algorithms to see more positive stories. Now that let's let's just draw conclusions from that. They did that to test run what they were going to do. Once they realized that they could get more profit from either negative or positive, depending on the person, then they changed that person's algorithm to make more money. It's all about profit. So whatever your algorithm is on your newsfeed, Facebook has orchestrated that to get more profit. And uh, whatever you're, anyone on Facebook, they've orchestrated everybody's to do this. I, you know, I don't have direct evidence of that, but, you know, draw your own conclusions. Yeah, and somebody might even, you know, once they realize this, just like go on there and start liking stuff that you would never like. Like if you don't like country music, start liking like country music posts and things like that and disrupt their algorithm. And, you know, you can also go on there and, and see like what the live feed is, but they make it uh, difficult to do that because they want to keep you on a program of like they want to keep you locked in to their game, basically. Oh, absolutely. And it's like that, you know, and that's an outgrowth to me of capitalism. Capitalism to me is these, well, it is what it's defined as these competing economic interests and derived from property, you know, and these companies there, it's, it's not like they're sitting there wanting to do bad things. They're all servants to this capitalist mind, mind fuck. You know, it's like everybody's got to go out there and hustle some kind of job or Get, hustle the government or whatever it is to get survive. If you're on the street, you're homeless, you still got to hustle the begging. It's all like some sort of a capitalist thing. And we're all competing with each other when it goes contrary to the fact that we're all one and everything's one. It's like the opposite. And what's amazing to me is, is I feel capitalism is an outgrowth of ego. The fact that we have this ego and we identify with it, a lot of us, um, the, uh, what kind of system is going to grow from that? Ultimately, this capitalism, you know? Right. So what do you, what would, what can we do about that? From my perspective, I'd say the inner revolution. You don't got to go out there and protest capitalism or whatever. Live your life, but inside work on your ego. Don't identify with it. Watch it dissolve as you just identified with it and that sort of thing. And that very changing your individual consciousness will change the Entire society. Ramdas said it starts with the individual heart, the revolution. Your heart, you. It, that's where it begins, that's where it ends. It's all one. And the more you change your consciousness, you will see us develop a new society, a new system based around cooperation. Now, we can give that many names, but it doesn't matter what we call it. It just will happen. I feel it's inevitable. Yeah, and I would say, like, ring with what you were saying, is that, like, the 
the inner revolution is is the only reason why we're here is to realize the self realize what the self is realize what god is and what reality is and everything else will, falls into place once those realizations uh have taken place and that that's really the only reason why we've manifested in this reality is to have the experience of realization yes i i feel the same way it's like we came up with that we projected a movie and the movie is the illusion of the universe or many universe whatever it is and you know we all sat down in a theater this is just an analogy so we, we projected this movie we sat down in the theater we started watching it and we got with the idea was to get so engrossed with it that we forget it's a movie we forget it's a theater. We forget <laughs> we projected it and everything. And we're almost all the way in the movie to the point where we're like, it's real. This is all there is, is this movie. And then spiritual awakening is, whoa, it's a movie. I'm in a theater. You turn around, look at the projector and find the light. That's it. That's it. And I took that analogy from Yogananda. But to me, that explains the meaning of life. If you could call it meaning or purpose. It's, it's, you know, that to me is what it explains, you know? Yeah, like we're, we're the projector and we're the screen, but we're not the movie. Yeah, you get it, yeah. Yeah, Yogananda, you know, that book, Autobiography of Yogi, had very interesting analogies like that. Oh, it's You know, he was book. an amazing, uh, I'll tell everybody who he was. He was a yogi uh, that, you know, in the early 20th century, mid-20th century, who, uh, you know, came from India from, like, very humble roots and was able to, through this, you know, network, meet a lot of amazing beings that were into spiritual awakening. And he was, it was predicted when he was a baby, though, by Lahari Masaya, a really amazing guru, that he would travel to the West and a book would be written where it included Lahari Masaya in it. He knew there was going to be this book where he was in it. And then he was like, Yogananda will go to the West and bring these teachings and write this book. And he said, it will help spread yoga and that will be a part of what leads to world peace. Now, he didn't give a time frame, but he was right about Yogananda. He was right about the book. And maybe in 10 years, we'll see he's right about world peace. Yeah. And then like, and that's the thing, like everybody, we're all on this planet, but everybody is living essentially in their own world projection. And so it's uniquely tailored to, to each individual. And so if one person finds like peace in their existence, in their world, their world is peace. And so if, if every person then uh, finds, finds this peace or more people find this peace, then the world as a whole becomes peace you know because we're all projecting uh, our own worlds but it, it is what is creating this entire reality yeah I, I feel like it says to be here now desire is the creator desire is the destroyer desire is the universe you know and it's interesting and desirelessness is moksha that was the first thing haridas baba taught ramdas is about how mm -hmm. desire creates this illusion and what was interesting also what about uh you know uh, desire is uh, look at another person, you know, listener, look at someone and just notice how certain things they say or do you're repulsed by, attracted to, seduced by, 
I'm interested and fascinated with, bored. You're not even seeing the person. You're just seeing your own desire system. Right. Yeah. So to see the other person, when you finally see, when you finally clear away all that, you'll see the other person's perfect. You know, they really are divine. It's like, it's only your own desire system that makes them see anything less than perfect. It's, yeah, it's your own hangups. It's your own thing. They're just where they're at in the scheme of things. And that's perfect. It really is. And that's when the, the perceptions are cleansed and you're able to see it. Like another way to look at it is it's all like pure energy. You know, we're yeah. seeing it through our desires, but ultimately we could cleanse that a lot and really see it like, like, I hate to use this movie because I don't, it's so violent, but you know, when Neo at, in the first matrix, he saw like everything was made up of these great green energy of the information of the computer simulation. Mm-hmm. That's like really accurate. It really is all made up of the same energy. Thus it's an illusion. You know, I just didn't like that movie, but I love that <laughs> part, you know? Yeah, everything is made up of pixels of light. Everything is uh, a da- dancing fragments of light, and that—that's what it is. And and those fragments of light uh, come together and mass together to make matter. And yeah, that's what, yeah, that's what we're in. Like quantum physics has explored subatomic particles. But to me, that's not what it's all made of, because that you go if we went if we were able to develop a better microscope, they could look even closer to the subatomic particles. We'd see a finer point of energy. And then well, if we got a bigger microscope that looked even further, we'd see a finer form of energy. And finally, when we get to the finest, finest form of energy, we'd find there's nothing there. Right. Yeah, formlessness and, and that like the, the finest energy the purest energy like you were saying the light that light is one with the formless that's what pontology said in yoga that the formless purusha is one with the manifest prakriti definitely and everything and when i say the pixels of light or whatever that everything is made up of akasha everything is akashic information and it when you see that it's it's accessible absolutely and and you know scientists are starting to say they look at the universe they study the math and all that they're like whoa this is a simulation that's their mind's way of understanding what what you were just talking about the oxygen records the information the light pixels their way they understand that is happening but they call it a computer simulation because it's the only way for them to understand it right and yeah that's like the and I'd probably the easiest way to explain it to like modern society. Uh, but it, it is, it is a, and I don't even want to say created because it's just kind of been put into motion by the, the oneness. And it is like you said, like a movie or a painting or it's, it's a book that's already written in red and, and one like, this, the story is, is done as soon as it's begun because from that standpoint, like outside of time and space, there's no reference for beginning and end or uh, birth and death or uh, any of these things that begin and end. It all takes place within time. And what we are is outside of time and space, even though we're interwoven through 
all of time and space. Yes, absolutely. And that outside of time and space is here and now. To me, the here and now, that that essence, that moment, that presence is beyond time and space. It's always there. It's eternal presence. Yeah, it's nowness. Nowness, yeah, yeah. Or isness. Yeah. Like that. Like I love that page in Be Here Now where he's like going to the toilet, eating dinner, running down the street. It's all the isness when you develop that calm center, which, you know, I'm developing. I Lately, with the coronavirus, I've been much more in the common center often because I've just been practicing more for some reason. But, you know, that will just I've noticed that that's ironic that there it's all here. But yet there's a forward progression in practice. So, you know, the paradox well, to me is important. Well, I think that's that's a good thing what you touched on just now is that like during these times of of intensity is is, are really moments where people can use that to awaken because I don't know who said this before, but the the pressure produces the pearl like the it's that pressure that that uh, will really uh, cause uh, a pop in somebody to where they they can see things as they truly are. Yeah, that's that's an important way to look at it. And, you know, we've reached the end of another Under the Blanket episode with your host, Papa Love and guest host has been on a couple times, Vajri Das. And listeners, you know, it's it's here. It's now. So take us out, Vajri Das. Well, I love you guys, and, you know, I hope all the best. And just... Uh, Try to be where you're at and, and don't try to be where you're not and you'll find that you're always right here.